Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Hey, listeners. I have a great episode for you. Unfortunately, my end of the audio turned out really strange. I'm keeping it as is, just so you still get the story and enjoy a surprise reunion. Hello. I'm going to go with devotees. We have an OG member back saving my you make ass. Me feel like, you make me feel like I'm Ice the rapper. <laughs> I'm an OG. Thug, though, than Ice T. <laughs> Clearly. So, Probably have more street cred. You do live on the sh- more street wise than Ice T does these days. But, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> you notice Ashley sounds a little different. Everything broke in her move for podcasting. Her mic finally... Yeah, the super glue gave out. (laughs) Yeah. I just love that you had yours held together with super... Listen, that was an expensive mic. (laughs) (laughs) And clearly had no warranty on it, so... The sad thing is it wasn't that expensive of a mic as we could have gone. It was a entry level. Oh, no, like... Poor. Ground floor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're both still broke. poor so that's good to know that hasn't changed in a year i mean we're upwardly poor because we're both living in our own apartments now and that's different that is true that is and, very true and we're within 50 miles of each other so there's that oh yeah yeah we are now not on we're opposite. basically <laughs> basically neighbors at this point yeah, we could actually have done this in the same room if it wasn't so last minute, but that's besides <laughs> the fact. I mean, that really kind of violates the spirit of the podcast, though. I mean, yeah, this podcast I've, has never been recorded with someone in the same room. What will I don't we, think we even do? know how to do that? Yeah. Like, I wouldn't know where to start. You could, like, make facial expressions. I don't, I think we guess where we actually see each other's faces, so. <laughs> I mean, it would probably somehow be even more rambly than this is arguably going to be. So, yeah, that's a good thing. I'm not mad about that. I'm excited. <laughs> I liked our OG. I would just take pictures of the face I was making <laughs> and send it to you. <laughs> I assume that's going to happen tonight, but with like selfies instead of screenshots. Um, probably not. But I mean, I can make that happen if you want. so let's begin this shit are you ready ready as i'm ever going to be my love (laughs) it is going to be audrey hepburn the life of the wonderful oh yeah i'm excited i thought you would be better i know and that's why i wanted to do this her acting career a small portion of her life like 10 percent I know. So she had a pet deer. What? Had a Disney what? princess shit of that. What? She had a pet deer. Yes, 
Some Disney princess stuff right there. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tell me more. So, Kathleen Rustin or Ada Kathleen Hepburn Rustin on May 4th, 1929 at Nevru Kevinveld in Ixfields, Brussels, Belgium. So she's Belgian. Surprise. Like chocolate. <laughs> that was offensive to Belgium. I apologize. So her father, Joseph Victor Anthony Rustin, who was a British subject born in Auschwitz, Bohemia, Austro-Hungary. Because remember, uh, in Hungary at that time were an empire and uh, Bohemia is a district or not a district, uh, like I guess the empire. I know words. Is it like a state, kind of? Mm-hmm. Okay. So he actually is pretty high up in the aristocracy. He's of British and Austrian descent. and Like the royal family. Yeah, he's just in the, a royal level, but pretty well. And in 1923 to 24, he had been a British consul in Samarang in the Dutch East Indies. And he had also been previously mother to Cornelia Bishops, a Dutch heiress. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and the real reason why he believes himself to be aristocratic is because um, he was descended from James Hepburn, the third husband of Mary, Queen of Scots. The real OG. Um, no. Hepburn- <laughs> Mary, Queen of Scots was an OG. <laughs> You know, when everyone's trying to kill you from the time you're out of the womb. Thug life. (laughs) So, um, and then Hepburn's mother, so she was actually um, noble. Her was Baroness Hemstra, who is a Dutch noblewoman. I'm sorry for all the mispronunciation of the Dutch names. I don't speak Dutch. Don't apologize. Embrace it. It's beautiful. I I feel bad because I've had a Dutch professor uh, who... Um, so her mother was the daughter of Baron Arnhold von Hemstra, and her father was mayor of Ernhem, du- governor of Dutch Suriname. So pretty people like, in Dutch society. Like the country? Suriname? Yeah. Okay. They owned a lot of things. I am, I must be forgetting what time period this is. Because uh, like, I know that in my heart. I know that. But in my brain, I was thinking that it was an independent country at that point. But no, it was not. Never mind. No, no. Pretty much most countries were liberated (laughs) at the end of World War II and then the period right after. Uh, After World War I, but not a lot. Poland became a country after World War I. Fun fact. Poor Poland. True. That's a good drink sound in there. Um, So... (laughs) We're pulling out all the stops today, pun intended. But um, let me have my tea. It's called reindeer fuel. I'm going with it. Uh, uh, your um, advent calendar tea. My tea event. Yes, go check out the Instagram story daily in the month of December because I'm doing my tea event calendar. I have no. This came with the tea event calendar. It will be a uh, Christmas tea that they're throwing in. It's very good, minty, chocolatey. Not too chocolatey because that'd be weird because it's tea. tea. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Hepburn's parents were married in Batvia, which is also a suburb of Cincinnati, as I've now learned. I thought it was, thought it was Batavia. Maybe that's just the one in Ohio. Batavia. That might actually be how you pronounce it. The only person saying it hasn't done a great job of it. So. I mean, we said that the city in Ohio is Lima, not Lima. So we're probably wrong. Versailles, it's, it's, it's a mess here, guys. Okay. Yeah. Ohio, not <laughs> pronouncing the names properly. We you know also discovered that our state technically wasn't a state at its bicentennial. It's fine. Wait, what? So. I was here for that. Was it? What? Oh, yeah. The paperwork never went through. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Oh, uh, it's so Ohio. Um, uh, so, typical. at the time of the I marriage, her father, Rushton, worked for a trading company, but after uh, the marriage, they relocated to Europe, and he accompanied. As, as you do. You know, get married, spend all that money, move to a different country. Goal. They spent a year, then they spent a year in London, moved back to Brussels, uh, because he had been signed to another branch. And they stay around, um, spending three years in Brussels, Ernhem, The Hague, and London, and, and settled in the suburb of the Brussels mun- municipality of Liekbeck in 1930, which means that Audrey would be around for, if my math is off, at math, as we've already established numerous times. No, who's good at math? Communists. So, <laughs> you know. Not good at math. That in mind. They're not good at math. We don't need to go to the Soviet example to discuss that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was really sheltered and privileged. Remember, she was from a multinational background. Her mother is a baroness. And they, she ended up learning five languages, English and Dutch, from her parents. And then... Some French, Spanish, and Italian. So she's than me, and she's a child. <laughs> she's every liberal arts college is just dream student, so well-rounded. I know. So in the mid nineteen thirties, like her parents had kind of been others travelings, but they reunited and collect donations for the British Union of Fascists. Yeah, that sounds promising. We're going to figure out who the fascist is right now. Joseph, her father, left the family abruptly in 1935 and moved to London, where he became more deep in activity and never visited his daughter abroad. Easiest game was spot the fascist I've ever played in my life. Yes. It's a little harder now. Um, hey, not really, though. Yeah. It should be hard. It should be harder than it is. That's what she said. Um <laughs> Oh, I love you. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm off my game today. <laughs> off of my game. So, Hepburn basically admitted that her father's abrupt departure was the most traumatic. Of- and we haven't even gotten through all of her life. She's still a child. Early days. And this is only in the, the mid 1930s. Uh, Just thinking about that. So much Oh, worse. Okay. So the same year, they all moved to her mother's family's estate in Erham and they lived there for a while. So probably about two years. But then 
Ella and Audrey where uh, Audrey was educated at a small independent school in Elham in 1937. So she wanted British education because her father is British. Also, shit is happening in Europe. Shit. So, interestingly, and uh, uh, divorced in 1938. So, yeah. first of all, that's not a thing they do at that time. But, like, how long did she wait from the time that the dad ran off? Like, five to 30. Oh, okay. So, like, three years. I thought it was. I think she had to find him. I mean, you can serve papers on someone now, like, in the newspaper. That's. Yes, yeah, good to know. Um, so, <laughs> called service by publication. <laughs> Great thing. So, Audrey wouldn't really have contact with her father until the 1960s when she renewed. She found him in Dublin through the Red Cross. They always were in, always in Dublin. I like that she had to find him through the Red Cross. Like, well, I mean, who else would you call? Think about okay, listen. If you before the technology, how would you find someone? And the Red Cross actually yeah. like would have records, so it'd be a very good odds you were a spy. And you she know, wasn't a spy. What you could do is you could stand on the roof of a very tall building and just shout their name until they come up behind you. Stella Exactly. Except for he was on the street yelling at a window. But it's the same idea. And it was an abuse that. I mean, um, <laughs> Audrey actually supported her father from when until his death. So, good daughter, shitty father. Dream. <laughs> to be supported by your captain. Yeah. I mean, you're already at that level of garbage human. Why not? Yeah. So. So, Germany in September 1939. Ashley, do you know why they declared war? Um, they were bored on the side. I don't know. Nazis. I think it That's was, why. <laughs> I, that was my second answer. <laughs> bored on Sorry. the Sunday. Or Nazis, yeah. Mm-hmm. Solid top two, go-to answers. Sorry, listeners. I did not study World War II for that. It bores yeah, me. Yeah, we always got to... Uh, Reconstruction, and then the school year was over. We started over the next fall. I've I like know modern history, but it's just I don't know. World War Two. It's just so shoved in your face. History Channel is World War Two and aliens. I'm sorry, that should be the channel's name. So I don't like it. Let I mean, me. It's a great constantly. thing to watch when you're bored on a Sunday <laughs> or hungover. Yes, I'll say yes. Because ancient aliens, if you're hung up, the answer is still aliens. <laughs> it's like if you watch Scooby-Doo when you're hungover, you wake up and there's still someone dressed up as like I mean, ruining everyone's lives. I think we both know I don't watch a lot of TV hungover. It's like I'm not usually hungover. Hungover. But I will take your word for it. Yep. Okay. So <laughs> what does Hepburn's mother decide to do? But her daughter back to Arnhem, Netherlands, because she believed, like in World War One, the Netherlands would remain neutral and not be Germans. Ashley, is this correct? I mean, it's a solid plan of action, but it does not work out that way at all. Correct. The Nazis attack. 
yeah. But um, Audrey takes us time from to 45 to train at the Arnhem Conservatory because she had been taking ballet lessons at her last year in boarding school in England and walking, um, this time under the tutelage of, I'm so sorry, Wizia Marova and becoming the star pupil. And then the Nazis invaded in 1940. Aunt had a picnic. Gotta ruin everything. I know. Uh, Hepburn changed her name to Ada Van Hemstrap because having an English-sounding name was dangerous, a.k.a. the Nazis are fighting the English, the British. We'll go with British because they were mention of the empire. So her family was really impacted because remember, they're nobility. They have money. They have houses. They have estates. I just have a stake. Um, (laughs) And Hepburn said, had we known that we were going to be occupied for five years, we might have all shot ourselves. It'd be over next week, six months, next year. That's how we got through. That's pretty <laughs> metal way to look at things. Hmm? But at the same time, relatable. Yeah. So we're, we're already knowing where this story is going, how happy it is. Um, in 1942, her uncle, Otto von limburg Schur- was uh, executed in retaliation for an act of sabotage by the resistance movement, but he wasn't involved in the act, and it's in Dutch society basically guaranteed his execution. They were like, it has to be like you. We have to t- take out someone high up. On top of it, Hepburn's half-brother Ian was deported to Berlin to work in a German labor camp, and her other hiding to avoid the same fate. So things are going great. They're just living peacefully under occupation. Um, So after her uncle Otto's death, her mother Ella and her aunt Mirji left um, Arnhem to live with her grandfather Baron Arnhem van Hemstra. So they get out of the way. They're trying to get away from all the heat. On top of it, um, Audrey was performing silent dance performances to raise money for the Dutch resistance effort. So Leave it to a ballerina to be completely hardcore and no one expects it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there had belief that she was participating in the resistance itself, but in the 2016 Airborne Museum Harstein report, Harstein report, uh, extensive research, and they didn't find any actual participation. She really just raised funds through the performances, which is more than a lot of people would have done. Yeah, that's still pretty hardcore. Yeah. Hello, kitty cat in the background. Sorry, she woke up when I went to get a snack. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Um, she also witnessed um, the transportation of station camps, stating that, quote, more than once I was sta- at the station seeing trainloads of Jews being transported, seeing all these faces over the top of the wagon, one little boy standing with his parents on the platform. Very pale, very blonde, wearing a coat that was much too big for him, and he stepped on the train, observing a child, end quote. So she basically, like, it just, it's so, seeing, it'd be like us seeing semis full of people, and you could see into it, being transport. Right. That's really depressing. Or, say, detention centers. Um, and it would make things better. It did not. Because... The living conditions grew worse, and our 
subsequently heavily damaged in Operation um, Market Garden. So there's bombings, there's like tanks rolling through. It's if you've ever seen pictures of the damage of World War II, towns they burned down major city centers. Not just the Nazis, the Allies. So. Oh, it's sort of like a scorched earth, Sherman's march to the peace situation. It's a, uh, it's, it's even more so. Sherman wasn't always going for civilians. This was total war. Civilians, like army, doesn't matter. You could be supporting my enemy, and there's they. If you get hurt, you get hurt. They don't care. They like the sides might help you later on, but crossfire you're caught in the crossfire it's cost of war so that sounds like a fun time that's the complete opposite of that yeah no fun so there's a famine in the following winter of um that followed the winter of 1944 because you know the supply routes of the dutch people's already limited food and fuel supplies uh for retaliation against railway strikes that hindered the chin Nazis. I mean, you really can't overstate how terrible they were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, how did they make it so? Like many others, Hepburn's family resorted to making flour out of tulip bulbs to bake cakes and biscuits. I did not know that was a thing so, you could do. You know, in times of famine, people eat a lot of things. In times of starvation, that's why we like. It's like the episode about the Donner Party, you know? People are like, oh, they were eating people. Yeah, they withheld a... Re- they were eating leather. They were eating bark. You're eating anything you can. And, you know, you kind of do what you got to do to survive. Do you feel good about it? No. No one ever feels good about it. The survivors in the Andes didn't feel good about it. People were shipwrecked in the early periods. Didn't feel good about it. But they were alive. And it's like, "Mm, I'm going to eat this cat today. Like, that's not plan A ever. No. Um, So during this time, Hepburn develops uh, respiratory problems. And I'm going to spell this because I can't pronounce it. E-D-E-M-A. Edema. Edema. Thank you. As a result of malnutrition. And the health problems uh, her family's financial situation was seriously strapped uh, during the occupation. Um, their estates and property were badly damaged or destroyed, and probably these like so they they're they're taken down to the level of everyone else. No one really in Europe, mainland Europe, I should say, could get through this without being somewhat damaged financially. Physically. So when the war ended in 1945, yay! No more Nazis. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, Hepburn moved with her mother and her siblings to Amsterdam, where she began training again for ballet under Sonia, one of the leading figures in Dutch ballet, and the Russian Olga Tarsanova. At all. So since their fortune has been lost during the war, her mother Ella is a cook and a housekeeper for a wealthy family. So get it, girl. She's not taking that shit. So in this is the wrong spot, but oh no. So in 
1948, Hepburn actually made her film dis- debut in the Dutch Seven Lessons educational film travel or travel film. I can talk, I promise. Um, so she, she was written and she had late continued um, her career by moving to London to take up a ballet scholarship at Ballet Rambert. No, but uh, you know, ballet scholarship don't pay the bills, so she continued to work part time and dropped her father's uh, Rustin from her surname. And then, well, she got the worst news, even though she was very talented, her height and weak constitution wouldn't make her um, a prima. So her dreams are crushed, but she's like, okay, I'm going to take this and concentrate on acting. Couldn't become a ballerina was because of the war, the health consequences. Just another thing that the Nazis had to destroy. Yes. Way to so, go, Nazis. You terrible, terrible people. Yes. Her mother, Ella, continued to work the menial jobs to support them. They're living together as Hepburn's a chorus girl in the West End theater musicals. Uh, uh, Button Shoes. And then Cecil Landra's Sauce Tartar and Sauce in, from the late 40s into the 50s. You know, because those sound like interesting plays. I don't know. On top of that, she was taking elocution lessons, which maybe I should. <laughs> with ac- <laughs> with uh, the actor Felix Elmer to develop her voice. That's why, you know... You will. She sounds so cultured and has very, very good speaking. So when she was performing, she was spotted by a casting director and she got to be registered as a freelance actress with the Association Picture Corporation. She appeared in the BBC teleplay, The Silent Village, um, in the 1951 One Wild Oat, uh, Laughter in Paradise, Young Wives Tales, and The Lavender Hill Mob before getting cast first major supporting role in uh, Thurl Dickinson's The Secret People in 1952, where she was playing the ballerina and performed all her dancing sequences. So get it, girl. Up in the world, getting more film roles, um, specifically one that was being shot in English and French called Carlo Baby which was filmed in Monte Carlo. Let's go. <laughs> so a uh, French novelist Colette was in Monte Carlo at the time and saw Hepburn. And she, he was like, like it. it think, Ashley, is Colette a male or female name? Um, I think it's usually female, but I don't remember. I'm going to go with I it's know- female and I just gender stereotype that. My bad. I mean, a lot of French names have, like, male and female spelling, like Michelle and Michelle, which I realize sound exactly the same, but one has an extra L and E. So, like, it could be male or female. I don't know. Okay. Whoever wrote Gigi saw Hepburn and was like, yes, Gigi on Broadway. Um, Hepburn goes into rehearsals and has never actually spoken on stage terrifying for anyone who had and required private coaching she received praise for her performance in 1951 when the play um you know plenty of positive reviews she got a theater world award for the role and she traveled with the tour so she got to go all around the united states visiting 
Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Chicago, Detroit, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, you know, the highlights. But then we get Audrey Hepburn as we 1953 when she had her first starring role in Roman Holiday. I love this movie. I'm not going to lie. It's so cute. Sorry, Gregory Peck. So, Ashley, have you seen Roman Holiday? Yes. Sorry, I have a mouthful of peanuts right now. Like honey roasted peanuts. Hang on. You better okay, well, edit that out. <laughs> no, it's staying in. That could be so bad. So, yeah, playing I do love that movie. <laughs> it's so good. Hepburn played Princess Anne, a European princess, while escaping falls in love with Amer- an American newsman. So Hepburn actually beat out Elizabeth Taylor, who was a very big star at the time. God, she would have been terrible in that. Oh yes, it was. It was not Elizabeth Taylor's. No, day. you have to be as pure and innocent as Audrey Hepburn was in order to pull off that role. There's no way. I don't think it would have been the classic. So the director, William Wire, uh, commented she had a- had everything I was looking for and talent. She was also very funny. She was absolutely enchanting. And we said, that's the girl, end quote. Um, on top of it, were right. they were right. Yeah. On top of it, I love that uh, Gregory Peck suggested that he elevate things so her name would appear before the title and as large as his. Um. And Peck said, quote, you've got to change that because she'll be a basic jerk, end quote. So even Peck was like, <laughs> she's going to be huge. Like, we can't, we him. can't, like, have her have, for the, for the 50s, that's huge. I love him. Oh, I love you him You go, too. Gregory Peck. This is what got her to unexpectedly win an, Amer- uh, an Academy Award for Best Actress, a BAFTA. The first time out. And a Golden Globe. In 1953. Killing it. Right? For her first movie. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what's up. Yes. So then, Hepburn stars with William Holden in the film Sabrina the next year movie. I don't and, think I've seen that one. Um, it has, from Casablanca, I'm blanking on his name. Humphrey Bogart? Yes. Yeah. I think I've always meant to watch it, but I don't think I ever got around to it. We can watch it. It's great. I love I'm pretty it. Sure I think it's on I have, Netflix. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> sorry, I'm a Hepburn fan, but like not just like breakfast. Bre- no, no. I mean that's good too, but yeah, I feel like that's the only one ever, anyone's ever. First. On top of uh, in 1954, Hepburn signed a seven-picture contract with Paramount. Um, but I like this with 12 months in between films to allow for stage work. So she wasn't going in there like some actresses where you get bound in else and then you, sorry, I just read a Doris Day biography for work. So um, like you have to make these really shitty films because you have to, like it's your contract. Right. What are you going to do? Not right. do it? They'll break your knees. Much. No, they won't break your knees because they need your knees to dance in shitty <laughs> musicals. Uh, that's true. And then in three Hepburn was featured on Time Magazine's cover and was noted for her personal style. So She is quite stylish. What yes. Is, yeah, all the above. So the next year when uh, Sabrina comes, she was nominated for an Academy Award and won a BAFTA on top of it. So that's two BAFTAs. 
after she also had returned to the stage playing a water spirit who falls in love with the on Dwine on Broadway, which now I just want to see that. It's intriguing. Seconded. That year, she in 1954, she won a Tony for Best Performance by a Leading Actress. You know, same year as like Roman. Half magnet. She's just attracting all these awards. Like, no, she's just that good. <laughs> that hungry. Have you ever had tulip flower? <laughs> no, not yet. Anyway, <laughs> not that broke. This is not the same year, the year she won um, an award for her Academy Award for Roman Holiday, which makes her one of three actresses to have achieved the Academy Award and Tony Awards for Best Actress in the same year. Can you guess another one? Um, in the same year? Oh, what's her face? What am I thinking? If you're thinking of Meryl Streep, the answer is no. No, I wasn't. I was thinking Judy Garland, but I don't think she was in Tony. No, Shirley Booth. Who? And never. Ellen Burstyn. I know who that is. Well, you beat me. I don't know who that is. She's a blonde lady with like the triangular face. <laughs> um, I think she's on like some show on TNT right now, but I might be wrong. Hang on, let me Google it. Okay, so while you do that, so on top of this, um, oh no, she was. She was in The Exorcist. <laughs> who, was I, who was I thinking of? I have no idea. Well, now I'm going to have to go to IMDb and figure out who I was thinking of. Hang on. Um, so, Hepburn marries her co-star Mel Ferrer, September of 1952, 54. Gosh, numbers. And it's a beautiful wedding. Okay, so, Gade. She starred in a series of successful films. She was Natasha in War and Peace, uh, starring Henry Fonda and her husband, Mel Ferrer. In 1957, she starred in Funny Face with Fred Astaire movie. Ellen Barkin is who I was thinking of. That was close. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, later that year, she starred in Love in the Afternoon alongside Gary Cooper and Maurice Chevalier. She also was um, Green Mansion. She was in The Nun Story, which um, focuses on... That one. Oh, cute. Yeah, it's good. So that one was, you know, controversial a little bit because, you know, Catholic Church and all. But it produced a third Academy Award and her another BAFTA. She spent hours, actually, in convents and with members of the church to bring truth to her portrayal. Um, and she, uh, during the production and she actually fell off the horse and spent six weeks laid up before the film could be, uh, and then she had a miscarriage a few months later. So not living the golden life. Not exactly living her best life there. Yeah. Miss period. I believe she's also switched husbands. Um, she's, uh, all right. For some reason, I thought phrase that. Which husband? Yeah, I'm going to add that out because that's not correct. So, not long after the um, nun story, she is pregnant again and she just herself in Lucerne, Switzerland, their home, until she gave birth to her son, Sean Shaw. Son, Sean, <laughs> in the early 1960s. 1960. 
Sorry, Sun Sean is kind of hard to say. Um, uh, does he also sell she- seashells by the seashore? <laughs> Who knows? See, I can't um, do it either. Yeah. So, and then we get the the Hepburn Golden Tea starred in Breakfast at Tiffany's in 61, Paris when it sizzles in 63, Charade 63, and My Fair Lady in 64. All the goodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Capote famously disagreed with casting Bernie because he wrote the role for Marilyn Monroe. Again, come on. There's no way. It, it's just not a, a good Monroe character. No. He'd be playing uh, against type, which is not. No. It's hard to do. No. So, um, because Hepburn would make an amoral narcissist in her own, um, infectiously fun yet lonely and insecure amid all her garnished trappings. So basically, actually do a good job. Right. You know, like she's supposed to do. Yeah. She got another Oscar. So, so while she's filming Charade, which is a um, kind of Hitchcock-esque film, her relationship with her husband, Farrah, was on the rock. Is rumored to be canoodling with ladies in Madrid while making a film there. Rude. How are you going to cheat on Audrey Hepburn? Like, she's Audrey Hepburn. I guess it's the same question of how do you cheat on Beyonce? That's a fair point. All right, proceed. Um, so she wrote to her husband because, again, this is the 60s. And she mentions <laughs> Don Farrah was like, off to Paris to patch up his relationship. Because, again, Audrey Hepburn. Right. And he even made a uh, cameo in Charade. So the couple reconciled and bought a Swiss villa called the outside La Sunny. Um, Can you imagine like getting into a fight and to make up, you just buy a house? Made up, and then they were like, let's buy a house here. It's very nice. It will remind us of how we kept our relationship together. I mean, okay, but that's still equally crazy to me. Like, it just kind of blows my mind a little. Yeah. So, Farrah actually helped her deal with the fact that her father, like, she didn't know what happened to her father. So, he was the one who worked with the Red Cross Ireland and set up a meeting in the Dublin Hotel. Um, it was awkward, and her father was aloof. He's British. And like I said, <laughs> she, she continued to send him money. Um, and that same year, Warner went on the door saying, we have a musical remake of uh, Pygmalion. You're interested? She was like, sign me up immediately. Um, because, well, it wasn't just that. Uh, the Broadway lead, Julie, um, I'm not going to audition for the film role. And so who would they offer it to but Audrey Hepburn for a million dollars? I feel like I need to pick up my cat and stroke her while saying that like, <laughs> Dr. Evil. I'm not I going will, to because that's kind of a lot of right now. But like imagine that I'm doing that. Okay. Um, what in my film heart, instead of doing. In your, um, what film are we talking about? Obviously, My Fair Lady. So, Hepburn trained with a singing coach uh, to get the right voice, and then uh, told her that her songs would be overdubbed by a voiceover artist, which caused Hepburn to storm sorry, as what? she should. Yes. Yeah. Um, Why even bother having to record them then? Yeah. 
apologetic. I believe she did record, like, she did actually sing in that. Because you've heard her sing in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. Uh, it was a huge hit. There were 12 Oscar nominations without one for Hepburn. Wait, you said without one for her? Yeah. Why? I don't know. I Did love the, the Academy Oscars. all get amnesia at the same time? Well, who won the award for Julie Andrews and Mary Poppins? Mm, okay. That's, <laughs> that's fair. All right. Still, though. Still, he's yeah. been nominated. Yeah. Uh, so in 1966, Hepburn starred Peter O'Toole in How to Steal a Million. Additionally, the same year she suffered another miscarriage. She is a bit depressed, as you would be, and her marriage is pretty rough. So she goes, I'm going to work some more, as you do. I mean, that all, that all adds up, yep. Yeah. So for the road, and it was with um, Albert Finney, who Hepburn began to have an affair. But as a relationship, and Hepburn worries about the custody of her son, because, again, we're in the 60s, mm-hmm. and attempted to reconcile with Fair again. He would actually, Fair would actually produce her last film, uh, Wait 67, which I need to go find now. Uh, it featured her as a blind woman, given a doll used to smuggle heroin in it, who is then stalked by criminals seeking to steal it back. Get her um, another. That sounds like something we need to watch immediately. Right? If only you had a laptop. <laughs> Shut up. I know. Believe me. So, she suffered, and that would be her third. Um, she and Fair finally divorced in 1968, and she retired from showbiz to raise her son, which, yay, you do you, girl. So, uh, just a year later, so 69, Hepburn married Dr. Andrea Dotti, a psychiatrist and playboy. She was really, you know, would change his ways. things really shouldn't go together. Psychiatry and flandering. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and pretty much probably very short into this marriage, she was like, stop this shit. But she had another uh, son with him and at least abided by the end of the decade. Hepburn then, sorry, I know it's itches. Hepburn then came out of retirement for the revisionist Robin Hood film Robin and Marion opposite Sean Connery, looking at the two characters in their later years, which I, um... I kind of love that idea. Right? Also, Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn together. Yes, please. Right. I also kind of love that, too. So, then she agreed in 1979 to the all-star thriller Bloodline. Um, no one liked. No one liked it. Um, and an affair with her co-star, Ben Gazzara. She bows out of films again taking up with her new companion, the Dutch actor Robert Wolders, and I think what shows her true worth at the end of her life in 1987, Goodwill Ambassador role for the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF. She was the face of its fundraising efforts, traveled all over the world to pretty wrecked communities. So just like in the beginning of her life, she did a lot of work for good for other peoples. Again, so, she was helping to, she would go to Ethiopia to help feed starving children for immunizing children. Yes, 
vaccines. Giving children vaccines is a good thing and helped build schools in Venezuela. She did return um, for a final role for who other? Actually, the famous what? director. What director do you think she would return for? Um, I'm trying to think. Hitchcock, maybe? No. no. It's in the late 80s. I know this. You're even at, I don't know this. Steven Spielberg, for his release, Always. Oh, angel. Come on. I knew that. <laughs> he played an angel so helping die to his afterlife, a.k.a. Audrey Hepburn. So, like, she didn't have to act at all, is what yes. you're telling me. She after film, like real life Audrey Hepburn, right there. Yeah. So, after filming, she returned to her UNICEF duties um, by helping to bring clean water and food to Somalia. And she returns from Somalia to her home in Switzerland, where she fell ill and had stuff to be a rare form of abdominal cancer. Mm, I wonder if it was from all that tulip flower and illness brought on by the war. Yeah, her health never was fantastic throughout her life. And I'm just doing, like, a synopsis of her life. I suggest reading more about it because she's fascinating. Um, so several years and had followed it had spread too far for operations and chemotherapy to be successful. She died January twentieth, nineteen ninety three. Oh, I was negative five months old, like to the day. Almost. And she had lived like think about it, she had lived through the war. She She lived almost like almost ninety years, didn't she? Hmm? Like she would have been in her eighties, right? No, she was sixty three. Unless wow, this person can Terrible at math. Twenty. She was born in twenty nine, and she died in ninety three. Just well, to re-record that part. I am terrible at math. Never mind. Is it right? Hang on. I have a handy calculator. Ninety three minus twenty nine. Yeah, sixty four. <laughs> we are not good. Still not good at math. Listen, listen. Look. You don't pay me to be good at math. All right. <laughs> this is just friendship. <laughs> exactly. You're not paying me for anything, much less math skills. So exactly. Oh, my cat was playing with her time. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. Um. Yeah. So, I mean, just think about it. She should really. Yes, she was an amazing actress, but she was so much more than that. She had seen so much by the time she she had been physically broken down, and she had to build herself I mean, back up. Like, really, the only thing you could say about her is that she is good at everything except for, like, being a wife to, like, one person. You know what I mean? I Other think that, it was the period, too, up. and her, she was working. I know, but still. Other Acting that, is not thumbs a, up. Thumbs up. I think, yeah, so. It's definitely a cultural thing, but. Yeah. The real reason I wanted to cover her is because I, I had this biography on her. And I didn't mm-hmm. know all the pre, like the world war stuff. And then I found out about that. I had known that she was the UNICEF ambassador. Yeah. I knew about the, like the ballet thing, mm-hmm. like the, the fundraising for the resistance and everything. But I didn't know like a lot of the personal life stuff. Yeah. And it just, it, it makes me so angry when people just so beautiful. She had such great style. Right. She was an amazing human. I'm going to punch you right in your pretty face. Would you have, after your uncle was killed, your brother's taken away, and they're still fighting the fight? Like, what would you have done? Right. 
And then when she's like so comfortable, she retires from acting and she goes out. Like she's actually going to these places to try to help the community. And you're going to say she's a style icon. No, she's a life icon. Maybe not the smoking, probably not helpful with the cancer at the end, but still. Well, yeah, but again, that most likely wasn't her fault. And the smoking probably didn't help, but. Yeah. So, Ashley, do you have anything you want to add before we go? Because I know you. Um, not really. Just proven to everyone you're still alive? Yeah, I'm boring now. <laughs> that was yeah. fun, though. Yeah. Thank you for. I appreciate your face. I can't see it, but I appreciate it. <laughs> No problem. Um, after this, we'll have two promos, and I'll see you Christmas. Yay! Oh, it's almost Christmas. Shit. I know. Like, next week. I have to drive some more. <laughs> Thanks, listeners. Hello, I'm Wood Gallifrey. I'm Sage Murray. And I'm Leon Felger. And we are the Occulte Veritatis Podcast. We talk about anything that intrigues, horrifies, or interests us, including true crime. Serial killers. Military conspiracies. <laughs> and other mysteries and horrors of reality. So get cozy with your favorite alcoholic beverage. Oh, Smoke a joint or two. Only if it's legally purchased medicinal marijuana, of course. And tune in. We would love to have you. You would. You can find all of our links, all of the ways you can subscribe, and the rest of our bullshit at www.ovpod.ca. We hope you listen in soon. Hey there. My name is Renee Powers, and I host the Wild Cozy Truth Podcast, a space for women to own our stories, find strength and vulnerability, and stand naked in truth. Each episode, I share a personal essay and then interview an ordinary woman about her extraordinary stories, from faith and politics to the messiness of motherhood and more. Become a Wild Woman Truth Teller by subscribing to Wild Cozy Truth on iTunes or Google Play, or learn more at wildcozytruth.com. Thank you for listening to The Cult of Domesticity. We are available on all podcatchers. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at The Domestic Podcast and Instagram at The Cult of Domesticity. If you have a topic request, information, or want to send us a recipe, please email us at thedomesticpodcast at gmail.com and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share with all your friends. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free. Thank you.